You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. So, as we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's guest. It was a, a suggestion from his own son who wanted to hear his father's story told here on the Hazard Ground. What an amazing thing to do. We always remind you guys to uh, uh, go to our website, hazardground.com, fill out the contact us form, give us any guest suggestions that you have. I think it's awesome that, uh, you know, there's somebody out there who wants their dad to share their story. So we'll get to that in coming up just a moment, uh, but we'll continue with our normal announcements. Please follow us on the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Subscribe to that YouTube channel. Um, that helps us as well, guys. You know, we talk about the five-star Apple reviews that you guys always leave us and we want you to leave those as well. I'll get to that in a minute, but, uh, the YouTube channel continues to grow. Uh, we need your help. So smash that like button, smash that subscribe button, uh, check out all the shows there. You can see all of our guests face-to-face that we've recently been doing here over the past year plus, uh, on our YouTube channel. So follow us there as well. Told you about the Apple reviews again. Um, leave us a review. I just got another one this week that uh, it's always nice to hear people's thoughts on the show and why they love it. But uh, please continue to leave Apple reviews. The more of these we get, Apple puts us at the top of the algorithm. um, And we continue to try to be one of the most notable podcasts out there. We can do it with your help. So go to Apple or wherever you get your reviews for the podcast. Please leave us the best rating you can. Tell us why you love the show. We certainly appreciate it. And our promotion with Amazon. I am tracking this every day. I see how many clicks you guys get on, give us on the website. So we appreciate it. Whatever Amazon shopping you're going to do. Go to hazardground.com first. The Amazon button is at the bottom of the homepage. Click on it right there. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping, whatever you want to buy, whatever you need. Um, It it will give you, I'm sorry, we will get a percentage rather of what you guys spend. And then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations featured here on this show. It's the easiest way you can help veterans, charities, and veterans just by going to hazardground.com first and then clicking on that Amazon button to do your Amazon shopping. Works for your smartphone as well. Redirects it to the app. So if you save all your credit card information on the app, it's really, really helpful there as well. So again, continue to support the show. We certainly appreciate it. We've had some great momentum in some of the guests that we've released recently. So we want to keep that going. And we thank you guys for all the support as always. All right, this week's guest spent a total of 24 years in the Army between active duty and the Guard. Also time as a a military technician. For those of you who are uh, active Guard Reserve AGR, you kind of are very familiar with the technician program. Uh, Retired as a first sergeant out of the Army. He was a combat medic and a flight medic. Uh, Had multiple deployments, including one to Afghanistan. Also spent time in his career doing drug interdiction, uh, forest fires, high-altitude missions, natural disasters like Katrina, earthquakes, floods, Everything you can imagine and recently retired uh, as a firefighter in the state of California. He is Gary Volkman joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Gary, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Mark. How are you doing? Uh, great. Uh, again, big thanks to your son, Camden, uh, who reached out to me for uh, to get you on the show. I think that's awesome. We thank him for being a big fan of the show. But, uh, I mean, listen, one of the things, I and mean, I've said this for years now, one of the things that's been amazing about this show that was sort of like an unintended benefit uh that i never thought of when when i started it was the idea of chronicling history that uh somewhere along the line you know somebody's going to ask their dad hey what did you do in the war somebody's asked their mom what did you do in the war and they could say hey go listen to the hazard ground where i did an episode and then we can talk about it right i mean because it kind of just saves a lot of the uh the the explaining where you're you've already explained it once so 
you know, and kids love podcasts. So, you know, but it's in perpetuity, right? I mean, like, as long as there's an internet, the hazard ground will be around somewhere, inshallah, as we say. Uh, and and uh, your story will be there forever for, for Camden to hear and, you know, hopefully Camden's kids to hear, your grandkids. And I don't know if he has them ready or not, but I think that's pretty awesome. It It, it is kind of exciting. I, I do have five sons. Um, Camden is number four. Uh, so the older two, they grew up uh, really with me in the military. So they totally understand all the deployments and, and, you know, being called up and, and being away and all that kind of stuff. The younger three more remember um, probably me being a firefighter paramedic. Uh, so they, they don't really have the same connection as the other two. All the boys are very close, but um, uh, it's just an age thing. You know, how they, how they uh, came about. So Cam uh, absolutely loves the, to hear the military stuff. And it's it's been kind of cool. I've been actually getting back with uh, a, a good group of friends of mine who all were all deployed uh, with me most of the time, and uh, we've been getting back together. And it's been it's been a lot of fun to get back and talk about stuff again and share stories and you know just help uh, help us get past some of the things that uh, not not everybody gets past. No, hundred percent. Any of your sons interested in joining the military? You know, it's it's uh, kind of crazy. I always figured one of them would, but no. Hey, well, <laughs> um, <then. laughs> yeah, it's it's been uh, I, I don't know. May, maybe from listening to some of the stories, <laughs> they've uh, changed their their minds. Uh, now, I do have one that became a firefighter. Uh, he's actually uh, working for Sacramento uh, right now, and uh, my oldest is an electrician. Uh, Cam is a construction worker, and and, uh, and the other two are still kind of finding their way. So. Well, listen, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think about my own kids. I mean, they're a long way away from being 18 or old enough to join the military, but you know, uh, I'm sure it's a conversation at some point in time they'll have with me. I'm, I'm sure your kids have had it with you, at least the idea of, Hey, is this something I want to pursue? I'm, I'm a big supporter of it. Uh, I've, I've helped many young, young men and women, uh, consider it as an option. Um, I, I do teach on the side also. So I, I always use it as a, it's not for everybody, but uh, for those that do want to serve or or think they can, there isn't there isn't too many jobs out there that uh, that you couldn't find in the military in one branch or another. No, nope, that is true. Well, uh, from encouraging others to yourself, how did you get your start in the army? You know, my my uncle was a Vietnam vet, and uh, he worked as a technician for the California National Guard at the, the uh, Army Aviation Support Facility in Sacramento. And growing up, I I knew that he wore a uniform every day and I just thought he had the coolest job in the world. And so at uh, 17, still in high school, I got my parents permission and I signed up and, and joined the guard, um, went off to boot camp, uh, right after graduating high school, went to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, um, did my time there and then, uh, went to Fort Rucker, Alabama and became a, a Huey and a 58, uh, mechanic. Uh, how did you know you wanted to be in aviation? Uh, that that's what my uncle did. He, he worked in Huey's. When uh, when you signed up, what year was this? Uh, Nineteen eighty-three. Okay, so there wasn't really, in theory, there wasn't really much going on in the world. We know after the fact there was, but uh, America was at a time of relative peace for the most part. Um, was combat ever anything that was in your mind? Um, you know, I think it's always in in 
I, I think it's in everybody's mind if they're joining the military. You know, you think that, yeah, this opportunity could could come or could present itself someday. Um, like you said, I, I did uh, join during the Cold War and, you know, there really wasn't a whole lot going on. And and for the first good section of my career, uh, I felt like like nothing's going to happen while I'm in. Right. Um, why the guard as opposed to active duty just out of curiosity was it just because your uncle did the same thing um i i think it was because i was 17 and and just not uh not too sure about what i wanted to do exactly um i mean i knew i wanted to do what he was doing i figured i could always go active duty if i wanted to um so i joined the guard and you know that's that's the whole thing if you hate it see it's one weekend a month two weeks out of the year which is a big joke um and then, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And if, if you, if you wanted to go active duty, you just sign up and go. And so that was my intention. Uh, after, uh, after coming home from AIT, I, I ended up on a, a nine month deployment to uh, Los Angeles for the summer Olympic games. Oh, really? So I got a lot of experience down there working on aircraft and got my first taste of flying around and, um, yeah, I lived in a elementary school <laughs> on a cot, and uh, it was a very interesting deployment. But I got to feel what uh, what I believe was kind of a continuation of my active duty um, part. And then I came home and uh, went out, got a real job, and started to do the guard thing, uh, one weekend a month kind of a deal, trying to get some experience. And uh, yeah, that's kind of where it left off. So when do you when do you decide to get into the technician program where you're doing this thing full time? Uh, after I went to work for a, a furniture company, I was moving furniture and fixing stuff. I decided I'm going to go active duty. Um, this is going to sound silly, but that's about when I met my wife um, or future wife, and so I uh, discovered the technician program. And thought I would work towards getting the experience to do that. So I started really working on aircraft quite a bit, uh, getting enough experience so that I could qualify for a technician job. I mean, it, it's interesting for those who don't know, uh, maybe some of the civilian folks listening. The technician program um, and even AGR, you know, Title Title Ten AGR is one of the better kept secrets uh, in the military. It's not so much secret anymore because the guard has been thrust into a much bigger role than ever before. But uh, if you're a title 10 AGR, you, you essentially are an active duty soldier. You work full time for the guard every single day. You have all the benefits of active duty and everything else. You know what though? You know, it doesn't happen though. They don't get to pick you up and move you every three years from Fort Campbell to Fort Riley to Fort Lewis to wherever. Um, Absolutely. Work uh, in the state that you're in. Yeah. I was working on an active duty air force base, um, Mather in Sacramento, California. I wore a uniform every day. I had a rank. Um, it, when you were on with everybody else there, uh, they expected you to, to act as a soldier, as, you know, as, as anybody would be expected to act. We had PX privileges and all that kind of, kind of stuff. Um, there was really no, no real differentiation that I saw um, between being an active duty guy and being a civilian, other than maybe the, who my paycheck came from. Right. And the technician program, technically, you're a state employee who wears the uniform every day as part of your your job. Um, 
So, I mean, you technically work for the state, not the federal government. Um, and it, it, guard people work for the, the state as well, but you get a regular military LES, leave and earning statement LES. But so the technician program is a little bit different. It's just a couple of quirks to it here and there. Um, whereas you still get paid for drill weekends. If you're AGR, you don't get paid for drill weekends because you get your active duty salaries. So a couple of things here and there, but it, it really is one of those nicer benefits that can provide for somebody who wants to build a family, build a home, live in a certain area, not have to uproot every two or three years and, and, and can still make a very long career out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing I don't know if you touched on that, but, uh, you do have to maintain a position in the guard that's compatible with your job. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, if you lose your, your guard status, you lose your full-time job. Yeah. That's the, the, the slight hiccup in the system there. Um, the, the two are forever linked. So, uh, you get into this, this technician program. Um, what year do you start this? I'm just trying to, you know, lead up to, uh, deployment. Um, I think, I think I was, uh, officially on at the, at the facility, um, in 86. Just out of curiosity, when the Gulf War kicks off in 91, did you, did anybody think of your age that you guys were going to get part of the, be part of this whole thing and go anywhere? Yeah, actually my unit did get called up. Um, uh, so they went to and backfilled for an active duty unit that went over the 507th left out of Texas and the California guard went and covered Texas and Honduras. Um, Okay. Yeah, we actually lost a helicopter in Honduras, lost three crew members. Wow. Um, kind of a headline you never heard about or read about, too. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, back then it was a big deal to us. Yeah, no, again, and, and I don't want to gloss over too much of, you know, the early part of your career, but um, how much actual training are you getting as a crew chief and a flight medic um, you know, what, while, you know, or in the pre nine 11 world, I should say, you know, I mean, what's, what's the operational tempo like? Cause you know, I mean, listen, I, I know the guard, but most of my guard time has been spent in a post nine 11 world. So, you know, there's always something to do. There was always some place we were going. I don't know the guard when we weren't into wars. Yeah, it, it was completely different. When I first joined, it was like a flying club. Most of them were guys that got out of the Vietnam war and came home, had to keep their technician jobs. Um, so it was, it was, uh, a lot more fun, more like mash on the TV show. Um, not so serious, not too military oriented. Yeah. We went to the field, but it was more about just flying and having fun and, um, drinking beer after, after drill, that kind of stuff. Very little hardcore training, not much, uh, real training towards combat. And then as, as the world began to change and the guard became to make up around 25% of the aviation assets in the, in the active duty world, uh, the training, the aircraft, the, the technology, all the stuff that came along with it allowed us to really up the tempo. Um, that's, that's where I think there was a huge shift in uh, between the guard and the active duty um, you know, we started getting the same equipment instead of flying on 30 year old helicopters. We were getting the, the Blackhawks that were that were being phased out, which still was a pretty big deal to the guard. And now people had to go back transition courses. Um, you know, you've got electronic um, cockpits, you've got advanced uh, electronic warfare gear in the aircrafts and stuff. So 
uh, there was a lot of training that, that really stepped up. And I think that's where, where my unit really excelled. Uh, there was a, a group of us, um, I want to take lead, but I was a, I was a full-time guy. So I was able to make a lot of changes, um, to really start to really take this serious and start to put together real realistic training and, and getting the guys up to speed for what we all considered someday would be a deployment. I mean, did you ever think though, um, that that deployment would happen? I mean, you, you, again, you signed up in 1983, so you get through 17 years plus of not much going on. Um, was, did you start to feel like, Hey, this is just the way it's going to go. And, and, you know, that, that opportunity is never going to, that, that bell's never going to ring. That opportunity is never going to come. I did absolutely felt that way. Um, the guard, this guard unit in California was so involved in other things. I think I was getting my thrill seeking through all the other stuff that we were doing. Um, we had a pretty active, our state is, uh, got a lot of problems, um, <clears throat> everything from forest fires to floods to earthquakes to uh, rescues. Um, like I said, the, the counter narcotic stuff. Uh, so we were pretty involved in, in, in a whole, a lot of different facets uh, that were going on in, in, in the training world. So to me, those were all like mini deployments. I mean, when I look up back, back on it now and I think my deployment to Bosnia compared to my, long time career as a guard guy no there's there's no comparison to 280 days away from home but i did routinely uh work two to three months at a time away from home throughout every year of my career so i did on the average of five a five annual training periods at five two to four week periods um and then that doesn't include all the schools and and everything else that we have to go to um i am i am curious about some of the other guard missions and again we'll get to bosnia and and afghanistan but you know in all this time and a lot of people forget this now because the guard has been so thrust into um you know a different role now than it was but the primary mission of the guard for those who don't know is is homeland response and state response uh whether that's natural disasters, floods, fires, hurricanes, whatever it may be. Uh, now we do more civil disturbance and riots because, you know, well, hey, uh, we're a convenient toy to have. That's a whole different conversation, but neither here nor there. Um, did any of that actually come up prior to, you know, you going to Bosnia in 99? Well, I'm not sure what your question is. Like, I mean, how 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 often were you guys involved? I can't remember you know, any massive, you know, uh, wildfires in California that you might have been part of or oh. earthquakes. Or, I mean, well, I can remember the, the earthquake in 89, but that wasn't any, that wasn't near you, was it? Well, that was uh, the no. area. You're in Sac- Sacramento, so it was close. Yeah, so we had the, the World Series one, right? That, that was the one that's fairly close. Yeah, we deployed, went over to um, a, an Air Force base that's closer to the Bay Area and pretty much staged. Most of the, there was plenty of resources to help handle that one uh got involved in the Northridge earthquake down in la area um i don't remember the year on that one um yeah getting old 
we also deployed down there for that. Uh, the Rodney King riots after. Uh, oh yeah, there you go. That's another one in California. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the guard got involved in in that one too. What was um, that? What was that mission for you? Was it just you know barricading traffic and blocking streets and things of that nature? I mean, that's what most of the ground units would do um, right. because we were an aviation asset. I mean, a lot of times we would get deployed, but not really used because of being a medevac unit. There's not a lot of people getting medevaced out. I mean, there was plenty of ground ambulances and fire department stuff that could do most of that stuff. So it was mostly just moving people around by aircraft. Right. Roads were inaccessible or, 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 or taking some VIPs on a nice little sightseeing tour above the ground. You know, <laughs> there's always plenty of that. There's uh, yeah, there's always people that want to see what's going on, and not be involved in it too. So. Gotcha. All right. So you have all that going on. Um, when we, we, we get to Bosnia, when do you find out that you're going and, and what are you thinking? What are you hearing leading up to it? And uh, what are you being told? It was, you know, that, that's uh, that was a, a, a tough time back then. Those were, that was during the Clinton years. And I, I remember them talking a lot about um, United Nations missions and what we were being deployed as uh, peacekeeping. And, and uh, we're going to give everybody a, a blue beret and, and uh, we're gonna we're we're not gonna be U.S. soldiers anymore. We're gonna be some sort of world police, and it was all that kind of craziness that was going on. And I don't think anybody really knew what the actual answer was. And so you know there was a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of unknowns. Um, I think when we started seeing the new equipment arriving, new to us, um, Blackhawks, and and uh, you know getting people off to schools that they've been waiting you know, sometimes months, even years to, to get to all of a sudden these school doors are opening up and, and people are able to get trained and, and we're getting pilots from the outside that were coming in because they already had experience. Then, then you kind of know you're, you're going, you know, you, they're setting you up to go. Um, yeah. So there was a lot of unknowns. Um, you know, it was exciting, but at the same time, it was a little scary, not really knowing what was going on over there. And I'll be honest. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, that, you know, pr- prior to that, I don't even think I knew where Bosnia was. Right. <laughs> um, okay. But so your, your mission as a, as a matter of fact guy is pretty consistent no matter where you go. Right. I mean, it, it, there's, there's no apprehension about the mission itself, whether it's Bosnia, whether it's, you know, the, the, the Gulf war or whatever, like, Medivacs are medivacs. Um, so I, I guess there's no real worry about what you're doing per se. It's just a question of where you're going. Um, but this is like your first real taste of an actual deployment. Did it seem any different to you at all? I think just that, that unknown of, of that there's, there's a, a real possibility that there's somebody there trying to do you harm. You know, it's like as a, as a firefighter paramedic, I don't think about pulling in and and wondering whether there's going to be a secondary device or somebody trying to shoot us because we're responding where, you know, back then it was, it was different. Somebody shoots at combat troops. We fly in and pick them up and take them to the hospital. And, you know, it's, 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 it's pretty, I want to say controlled. Um, it's not quite as chaotic as I, as I envisioned it would, would be. Um sure. You know, there's always the the danger. I think uh, over there, you know, having never dealt with a landmine in my life, and now all of a sudden we've got a country that's got 
literally millions and millions of landmines, you know, to, to the point where you can't even walk off the wooden pathway or, or the concrete pathway because there's so many landmines, you know, there's real good chance you'll lose a limb. So we did see a fair amount of, of, of that kind of stuff. Um, even though most of the real fighting had been over. I mean, so you actually have a medic, med, medevac flight in Bosnia. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah. We, we did fly a few missions. Um, I couldn't tell you the actual numbers. I want to say it was someplace in the hundred uh, range. Well, that's um, so significant. Not, uh, I mean, over nine months. No, that I, I think that's pretty light. Um, okay. Um, it just just depends on on. It's like on, ten, you know, a, a, a month to one every three days. Okay, that that would be a really slow house in a in a fire department. <laughs> Okay, but, but, yeah, I, I, I guess. Oh, I mean, you know, I, it just—I I don't want to minimize, you know, the effect of it. I, I guess, you know, we don't know. God, the, the the historical recount of Bosnia and what went on is so not there. It's so vague, right? Like, we fought that war from thirty thousand feet. Uh, we didn't really commit anything on the ground. Everything was done through the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, whatever support we provided was done through the air. But like you said, there was still a certain amount of things going on in the ground that, you know, uh, probably isn't, hasn't been spoken about enough. Yeah. There, there was a, a, a great deal of, because I think because we hadn't been to war in a very long time and because we were still kind of doing this joint multinational kind of crazy setup that that's on in the world where, you know, France has a section and, and, uh, and we have a section and, and yeah. Russia has a section or whoever, you know, and it, it, it switches around that, that you have all these uh, entities trying to, to, to make a name for themselves. And yet nobody wants any risk for anybody. And so it becomes very challenging for, for, you know, we, we fell under a, a, a regular army hospital uh, unit that did not understand aviation at all and would keep us from flying because of weather. I mean, nobody judges weather better than pilots. We have limits and of what we can do and what we can't do. And then to have, you know, a, a medical service officer tell you that you can't fly because, well, there's a little bit of fog. We have an all-weather aircraft. I mean, we've got some great pilots. We've got some, uh, you know, dual instrument rated people that as long as we have takeoff ability, we can, we can do our things. We... Uh, I know that we deployed a couple of times, I say deploy, but went on missions. Uh, it was a pretty serious uh, vehicle accident on one of the highways in Bosnia. Uh, a, a bus was involved uh, down an embankment, um, many people injured. Uh, we got on scene of that one within, oh, I don't know, 20 minutes from launch time, and they would not allow us to land. Um, they wanted the civilian authorities to, to, to get involved and handle that. And, you know, here we have two medics on board. We're flying overhead. We could, we could literally land and really make a difference in somebody's life. And yet you've got politics that get involved and don't let you do what you're supposed to, what you've trained your whole life to do. Yeah. Well, uh, that, that happens more often than not. Um, when you, uh, are, are leaving Bosnia, 
do you feel like, okay, I finally got a chance to do what I wanted to do as a flight medic. I finally get this, you know, the opportunity to, to put all these skills to use and I'm almost at the finish line now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 18 years in 19 years, whatever it may be. Uh, you know, let's, uh, let's call it a career. Was any of that in your mind? Um, well, I wouldn't say it the way you're saying it. Um, okay. How would first, you say- off, um, first off, I was not a flight medic then. I was a crew chief still. Okay. Uh, so I ran the rescue equipment, ran the hoist, uh, took care of the aircraft. And uh, my partners, the guys that I was flying with regularly, were all guard guys, firefighter paramedics. And they were all trying to convince me to become a firefighter paramedic when I got home leave my technician job and as they would say, go get a real job. And, uh, you know, um, thought I had the personality for it. Uh, so in my downtime, I was taking medical classes. I was becoming an EMT. I was taking advanced cardiac life support. I was taking all these classes, um, while I was over there and discovered that I really kind of dug being a medic. I, um, being a mechanic is, is cool too, but um, being a mechanic on, on people is, is, has its own challenges. Sure. Uh, and Bosnia took a terrible toll on the guard. Uh, it was first long time deployment, you know, 270 days away from home for a guy that's normally one week in a month kind of a thing was pretty hard. I think we lost, uh, 25% of the company when we came home, people had just ETS or got out due to non-retention. Yet non-retention. Um, Which is crazy because statistically and typically retention is higher after deployments, not lower. Yeah, but it was so, uh, I hate to say mismanaged, but that's really quite correct. Uh, both from from Big Army and from Cal Guard. Um, mismanaged in what aspect? Was it just bad leadership or was it, you know, the the whole concept of what you were doing? I, I would say a, a large focus of it would, would have been leadership. Um, yeah, can't, can't get into too deep of specifics on that, but uh, felt as though everybody was so ill-prepared for, for what's, you know, again, I, I, I would ask why you can't get into specifics, but um, I would, I would say, I, I think for the first real time in that generation of the guards leaders, they actually had to do, military stuff full-time and be leaders and they never had that sort of experience i I think i think you just nailed it i think guys that had had never been active duty before their whole career was in the guard became a platoon sergeant or a company commander had never really commanded anybody that you know where you had to make a real tough decision you know you might have to choose somebody off or coming back late for lunch or something but you know, now, now things are a little bit more serious and the, the, the lack of control uh, that was going on back then was poor at best. Yeah, no, again, and I can see that. And I, I mean, you know, I was active duty first before I went and went into the garden. It, it was invaluable. You know, I, I can, I can remember a uh, quick little anecdotal story here. I had left active duty and, uh, I had gone to a range for the first time with members from the guard and I watched, I think it was an E8 and an E7 at the end, you know, cause when you burn up ammo, you have to get rid of all the ammo. Um, 
And and for those who are wondering why we have to do that in the guard, if you don't use all the ammo, like they give you less the next year. Yes. It's like a budget thing. So everybody, everybody fires up all their ammo, even if there aren't enough people there to, to qualify. Anyway, I watched the C7 and the C8 just stand there and play, think, act like they were Rambo on the range, just, you know, guns on each side, just pumping rounds down range, complete safety violations, you know, uh, just a bad example to set in front of soldiers and everything. And I went absolutely ballistic. I went bonkers on the range. I threw my Kevlar. I was going nuts, like just screaming because I thought it was real Mickey Mouse shit that was going on. The idea that everybody stood around and watched it, nobody stopped it to me was, and my company commander, I was a, I was a, a senior first lieutenant at the time. My company commander chewed me out for it. And I'm like, that this is nuts. You're yelling at the wrong dude. Go yell at those guys for, for, for about a dozen safety violations, just setting an overall bad example uh, in front of the entire unit. Uh, just because they thought it was funny at the time. And and that's the different sort of corporate culture of the active duty and the guard. And now the guard is a much different corporate culture because they've been thrust into an active duty role more often than not. Yeah. And what you're saying is, is, a, is a hundred percent my experience. Also, when I first came in that joke side of things was, Oh, this is, this is a, a club. This, this is, this is not military. This is, we get to wear a uniform, but yeah, we can do, pretty much whatever we want. And then later on, you've got active duty who can be so overbearing that, you know, this is stupid. We can't even think without, you know, on, on our own two feet. And then, so that was our experience. And in, uh, in, on that first deployment is that active duty looked at the guard as a, a, a bunch of yahoos that didn't know what they were doing. And what we discovered as just as a mechanic is that down on the on the flight line taking care of these aircraft? We had technicians that had been working on these these advanced aircraft now for several years in a hangar as as uh, as technicians that really knew the aircraft inside and out. And then on the active duty side, you've got a twenty year old kid that finished AIT, you know, about an hour before he got in country, and they don't know how to do their job. And we ended up bailing them out constantly. But yet we couldn't be trusted because we were guard guys, and right. so so there's there's both sides of that of that coin. I I would put our guard paramedics against any active duty unit anytime now. Right. Back thirty years ago, no. But the the guys now, I mean, these are guys that are working every single day, either on an ambulance or in a fire department, and they're doing some incredible stuff. So uh, beyond all the, you know, uh, differences between the guard and active duty, you get back from Bosnia, the unit is down, um, people and everything else. Are, are are you thinking that you're going to change course at this point in time? Or, or, and the, the other parallel part of this, you talked about, you know, doing this medic thing. Did you see anything over there in Bosnia that sort of solidified that that was the right path for you? Uh, I mean, because I was working in the hospital on my, on my spare time. Uh, yeah. I, I got to do some, some pretty cool stuff. I mean, I did uh, one of the few rescues that were done there was done by myself and, and, and my flight partner. Um, we, we evac'd a guy who had stepped on a landmine out of a, out of an active line uh, minefield. Um, that was a, a combat hoist from about 250 feet of cable. Um, that's a long ways. Um, so, you know, putting somebody on that cable and lowering them in, to a minefield and having to package a patient and, and bring them up without killing anybody else. Um, yeah, that was pretty exciting stuff. 
Um, you know, that's, that's not your everyday kind of a call. Um, so after, after Bosnia though, I was pretty disgruntled too. Um, and I wanted out, I, I wanted away from the technician program. I wanted to, to get out and do something different with my life. And I, I was really pursuing the medic thing, trying to consider whether I wanted to, to, uh, you know, maybe leave it and start a new career as, you know, as a fireman or, or whatever. I actually thought I wanted to be a cop. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> what yeah. made you stay in? Was it just sort of biding time or what? Well, I was married and had four kids at that time. Um, or yeah, I think I had four still. And, uh, you know, so I got a, I got a, a wife and a, and a house and, and, and kids to take care of and all that kind of stuff. So leaving a career at, you know, in my late thirties, looking for a new job is, uh, yeah, it, it would be very challenging. Sure. Sure. Um, and then all of a sudden nine 11 happens. So, um, does, you know, does anything solidify you staying in prior to nine 11 or other than what you had just mentioned, or did you think you were just counting your clock down? No, I think our, our program, uh, a couple of years after Bosnia, we were in a kind of a rebuilding phase, just kind right. of getting people back in, getting new people. Um, we really started to put a, a, a heavy emphasis on training. Uh, I became the lead trainer at the facility, so I was flying every day and training people every day. And uh, I got a great group of guys that came in to work for me as instructors, and everybody had a like mind. And so we all really started to put forth a, just a ton of effort into training people the way we thought that they should be trained so that we didn't fall into another Bosnia situation. Um, so our rescues became, um, well, we just started doing a lot more of them. We started telling people, we started kind of advertising of what our capabilities were, which were getting us more calls Um starting to let the sheriff's departments who are normally in charge of search and rescues of what our capabilities were, and then getting them to contact the right agencies to get us out on a, you know, maybe a, a search and rescue um, versus waiting until it's a body recovery, uh, which is normally how it happens. And uh, once, once we started to smooth that out and, and started to have some real rescues and it, it, it became something that, oh, well, we're having a problem on Mount Shasta. We'll just call those 126 guys and they'll come down and, and, and fly up there and, and get them. And that became kind of a regular thing, probably once a month. So where are you on 9-11? Uh, 9-11, I was, uh, I, I was actually tying my boots, getting ready to go to work and uh, watch the, I had the TV on and, and, and watch the second plane hit the tower. Um, I, I remember watching the tower was on fire. And uh, and then watched the second plane come in after I got to work. And I knew, I mean, just, you know, in your head, you're just knowing, yeah, this this world's going to shit. And, uh, yeah, we're going to get involved in this one. And so actually that day, because everybody was so unsure of what was going on, we prepped up as many birds as we could, not knowing if it was going to hit the West Coast, too. And. Uh, you know, just got got ready, started calling people up and making sure that we had medics available and, and pilots available and crew chiefs and making sure all of our gear was 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 staged and, and, and ready to go. 
and told my wife I'll be home when I'm <laughs> when I'm home. Um, obviously, nothing continued on after that day, but there was still that that air of of oh my God, what's going to happen? You know, for quite a few months uh, that you know it dragged on for a while there. Yeah. Um, and, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say then as as things kind of um, you know, just went on from there. Our, our training just intensified, just knowing that, you know, it's it's not going to be long before they spool up somebody. They just got to figure out who we're after, you know. Right. So you don't ultimately end up in Afghanistan until 2003. Um, were, were you anticipating it for it to take that long? Um, well, I, I don't think anybody ended up there for about the first 10 months or so. Sure. Um, yeah. SF went in, you know, late. Uh, well, it was already so that happened in September of '01, so it was already late 2002, and we went in in January of '03. So we were the third group in um, the OEF three, and replaced an active duty unit that had been there. So, um, yeah, it was kind of a big deal for a guard unit to come in and 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 take over from an active duty unit on a full deployment like that. Now, again, I, I said earlier that, you know, hey, medevac is medevac. It doesn't really, you know, there's not much uh, worry about the mission itself. But compare it, you know, think back, you're heading into Afghanistan to do this versus you had just been in Bosnia to do it uh, a couple of years ago. Is your, mind, is your mind frame any different? Is your mindset any different doing this in Afghanistan or, or is it just because of the unknown of the actual territory? I think the, the unknown's always there. You know, there's always that little bit of fear in, in the background of, of how bad is this? You know, uh, Bosnia, you didn't hear about anybody getting shot or IEDs trying to take out, you know, secondary devices or, or whatever. It was much more of a peacekeeping mission where this was more of a combat deployment. Um, you know, the, the units that were there were going door to door, kicking in doors. People were getting injured. Um, you know, it's, it's certainly not a World War II type scenario, but death is happening. And, and you know, without uh, with, without somebody else being there to help take care of some of these problems, the death rate would have been higher. What were you guys told prior to arriving in Afghanistan? Uh, about the mission yeah Ooh. um well first off i i was not in the position to be a first sergeant i was a i was in the flight platoon i was uh, just a trainer and our first sergeant was one of those retired um in place vietnam vets and wasn't ready for another deployment and i got asked to take them as the acting first sergeant and I jumped at the chance. I was excited about it. Uh, so as crazy as that sounds, um, yeah, I couldn't wait to go. Um, to me, I had trained. I was in 18 years by then. And to me, I was I was all about I've trained my whole life to do this job and never really got to do it. And now it's like, put me in, coach. I, I want to show you what I can do. And so... We went very shorthanded. We went, uh, we took six aircraft and 81 people and 
um, to cover an entire country um, with 81 people is 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 a pretty big task. Um, there's four crew members per aircraft, and then there's maintenance and there's operations, and you know there's very little uh, support. No no extra people. No overhead. Um, and we were scattered. So we had two, um, well, actually three birds in Kandahar and three birds in Bagram. And then we each gave up one bird to cover an FOB in the middle of the country to kind of split the, 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 the flight distance. So we kind of two, two and two. Did this seem like it was overwhelming in any size, way, shape or form? Um, that's hard to say. I mean, I, I was overwhelmed with the task um, just because I had not really been in that role before. Right. Uh, I, I know how to manage, but I've never actually had to do it in, in a situation like that. And dealing with like the personal problems, people's. I, I, I knew in my head that I'm solid. I, I know what I'm doing. I know that my buddy is solid. His wife's taken care of. Everything's cool. But then maybe you have, you know, uh, other people in your in your unit who's, you know, got a child custody issue or or financial problems or the other things that that first sergeants and company commanders have to deal with. And those those personal issues become way more involved than than your everyday combat mission. So when you uh, land on ground there um, in Afghanistan, it's January of 03. Give me your initial thoughts and reactions. I mean, I know it's not, we're not in Kansas anymore. We're in your case, California, <laughs> but um, was there a sense that like any of this was, I mean, again, the word overwhelming. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so a lot of our gear hadn't come in. Yeah, well, and I'll say this much. When you land in Kandahar, man, uh, and you land in the you land at the airport there, and you look around, and you just do a three hundred and sixty, and there is mountains on all sides of you. It feels like you're in one big valley, like it's like it's one continuous mountain chain that runs around you. You're kind of like looking around, going, "Yeah, this this uh, this place is not like anything you'll ever see anywhere in the world." Yeah, absolutely. Well, we got there at nighttime, so. Oh, see, <laughs> yeah, so, so you can't see anything. Um, they shuffle us off, you know, get to a, a place where we can bed down for a couple hours and they put us into some, some kind of transient tents, you know, and, and, and we unroll our stuff and go to bed and get up, you know, crack of morning and step out of the tent. And like you said, there's here, oh my gosh, there's mountains all around us, you know, and at the end of the runway is a mountain that's 18,000 feet tall. I mean, that's 4,000 feet taller than Shasta here in California. And that's, it's massive. It's just beautiful to look at. And there's snow on the ground and the streets are muddy. And um, yeah, it was, it was a little different here. We are in green. Everybody else is in Brown. And uh, you know, that was kind of shocking. I was really mad about that. We're the only ones in black boots and, 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 you know, green, green uniforms. And boy, do we look ridiculous? Yes, we do. And so, you know, that's, that's goes back to that. Oh, I guess the guards here, you know, get out, get out your funny hats and your pink flamingos to set around the tent, you know, and. Yeah. Uh, such. And, and thus was born the term RFI uh, for those in the guard. 
rapid fielding initiative. Uh, and that's pretty much what happened. I found a uh, supply sergeant that really wanted to go for a helicopter ride and uh, was able to get uniforms for everybody. Uh, found, uh, yeah, found a lot of trading going on. Hey, listen, uh, beg, borrow, steal, right? Any good logistician. So, uh, yeah. Do you remember your first medevac flight in Afghanistan? Absolutely. My, uh, so actually our first day, so we got up that day, we went, got some chow, came back, starting to get some, um, we're going to do right seat ride kind of a thing, you know, where you're, you're getting your hand off from the guys that you're replacing. And within the first hours of being there, there was an explosion at the front gate. Um, the, the medevac guys jumped into the back of a Hummer and a couple of my medics jumped on and everybody flew out to the front gate. And uh, it was a couple of kids that were turning in um, unexploded ordinance and it blew up in their faces right at the, right at the front gate. So started off with the, you know, well to us, it wasn't anything different than an IED, but, but it was, uh, it was literally kids trying to turn in the explosives and, you know, getting blown apart. Another thing that we did not prepare for was pediatrics. We weren't expecting any kids. This is a combat zone. We're expecting combat soldiers and, and, and enemy combatants, not a bunch of civilians and a bunch of family members and little kids and babies and, and all that. So we were not really, um, not that our guys aren't prepared to take care of those kids, but we didn't have the equipment. Your, your average army medic doesn't carry a whole bunch of pediatric stuff on a medevac bird. That's not our normal clientele. So, yeah, so my first mission, um, there was a, uh, uh, a child who had fallen off of a roof um, in the far northern reaches of Afghanistan, and they launched us to go get him. Um, it, there was, a, like you said, a huge mountain range on the way there that we had to navigate. Uh, they don't normally let medevac guys fly anywhere without um, an escort. So you need an, an Apache escort because of them trying to shoot everybody down. Um, that became a, a lesson that we didn't understand. Uh, although I was aviation prior, I didn't understand that uh, an Apache flies much slower than a Blackhawk. And so you know when you're on a, a fun run with your or, or a, uh, a platoon run or a company run and you always mm-hmm. put the slowest guys up front and all yep. the runners are in the back and they're all just complaining because yep. they can't stretch their legs out. Yep. Same kind of a thing. The Blackhawk wants to fly and it wants to fly 150 knots. And you've got this Apache with a whole bunch of stuff sticking out of it, rockets and guns and everything else. And it can't fly past about 120. We feel the urgency to get there because we got somebody that needs help and they're going balls to the wall, but we literally could. Their could balls aren't as big or as yeah. fast. Um, uh, let me ask you one thing though. So you're going to get this kid, this Afghan kid who fell off a roof. Was there any part of you that's like, the hell are we doing that? Like we're supposed to be like, why are we saving Afghan children? Like look in the big picture, I get, you know, we are there to, to help everybody, but right. And we shouldn't have anybody suffer, but there's initially part of me that I'm on ground. This war is, you know, 15 months old and, uh, uh, we have American troops in combat nonstop and you're sending me on a gun run to go get a child who fell off a roof. Who's not even an American child. 
Yeah, I think that goes back to the stuff that people just don't understand about winning the hearts and minds of the people that you're there. Yeah. For. Yeah. Yeah. You, know, you know, I mean, even the Green Berets train the insert, you know, train the the locals to help overthrow whatever faction is is yeah, going on. There's there's a combat related effect to that, right? Um, yeah, and no hearts and minds. I get it. I mean, I, I was in Iraq. Hearts and minds. I get. I, I get it. I just. You know, I'm trying to wonder if anybody else around you was looking at you going, you know, or you were even thinking, the hell are we doing this for? Uh, yeah, I think that does come in. I think a lot of times it's, it's you know, you got your, your Navy SEAL out there who's living in an FOB all by himself. He's trying to make a difference where he's at. And, you know, this child gets brought to him and he's limited because of where he's at. He's, he's, a, he's, he's probably overtrained for for taking care of this person but he doesn't have the facilities and so the only way to move throughout the country is by air and i I think that's kind of what it came down to um did we haul a lot of civilians yeah a fair amount but most of them were because of combat related injuries right um this one not so much but maybe he was the child of a of of somebody that was helping them so who, who knows i mean it's it's hard to say okay I assume this one goes smoothly as planned. Uh, yeah, not at all. Um, oh. <laughs> so we got got to the got to the mountains, which you know everybody has rules that they have to follow, and aviation's pretty strict on their rules. You know, aircraft are not supposed to fly above fourteen thousand feet without supplemental O2. Um, the mountains that we're flying over are taller than that by a lot, so. You know, I, I know that at one point I saw 19,000 feet on an altimeter. Um, in a Blackhawk, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, anyways, we ended up getting to the to the child. Um, he was, uh, he had a depressed skull fracture, so he was in really bad shape. And he was not breathing on his own. So um, myself, as a crew chief, I was um, breathing for the child. I was uh, using a, a bag valve mask and and doing his airway while my medic partner was doing everything else. Um, IVs and, and um, you know, making sure that he was going to survive this flight over the mountains. Um, as you can imagine, uh, controlling an airway at altitude is, is, is difficult. Uh, anyways, I breathed for that kid for, you know, a 45 minute ride back home. We're low on fuel, going to run out of, out of gas, um, had to get into our, our 20 minute reserve. Uh, these are, these are things that aren't normally broken either. Um, ditched our Apache at one point because we could just fly so much faster and could get, get to where we needed to go. Got in trouble for that one. Um, you know, landed and all I could see while I was breathing for this kid was the face of my, my fourth kid. Um, uh, he was about the same size and, and, about the same build and that's 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 the one that i don't want to say haunts me but i still see that kid i still see his face but i was right there with him for a solid hour um yeah he didn't make it so i mean you get your first real taste of this whole experience is there a part of you that thinks hey if this is what this is going to be like man i'm i don't know if i'm, I'm going to handle this Actually, I think I think I took it better than than I thought I was going to, you know, with my 
being surrounded by my friends who work in that field regularly, you know, I could, I could debrief with them and we could kind of do a critical incident stress uh, debriefing and, and kind of tell me, you know, Hey, this is sometimes the way it works. And I'd been studying kind of the medical side of things for, for quite some time. And so, you know, I, I'm not unrealistic that not everybody's going to make it. Um, yeah. So now you, you had told me you flew over, I mean, in the nine months you were there, hundreds of missions, right? About 800. I mean, so 100 in Bosnia, 800 in the same amount of time in Afghanistan, carry the two. Yeah, that's a lot more. Um, So now you're going out, you know, what was three days a month before. Now it's almost every day. Oh, yeah. What? I'm curious as to like, you know, when it when it's that much and it's that rapid and it's that fast, is there any part of you that's thinking, you know, one, like, oh, my God, this is untenable. But two, like, h- how do we survive this thing? Because if ever and again, I assume not everybody is, is an American who has been injured. Right. I mean, some of these are, like you said, other scenarios that present themselves. Um, I mean, yeah, there's there's the local nationals, there's enemy combatants, there's Americans. Obviously, we care much more for our brothers in arms than we do everybody else. That, that sounds terrible, but that's no. reality. These, these I, are my I, brothers. I don't, I don't know that it does. I, I think there's a priority to everything. Yeah. So, I mean, we're going to do absolutely everything that we can to save an American life. Um, you know, and that's... Uh, yeah, if we, if we had the choice between two calls, I mean, that's that's a no-brainer. Uh, I think the question I got asked the most when I got home was, how could you pick up uh, a member of Al-Qaeda and try to get them medical help? Um, it's a difficult thing to explain. Um, I think for me, sometimes I, I think to myself, we're going to do what we can for them because they're humans mm-hmm. and if they if they can suffer a whole lot longer for what they've done for their sins that's not up to me that's that's up to a higher power so you know um later on i learned more about the way i felt about things and 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 my own personal beliefs um in god that that will help me answer those questions easier I, I want to hear that, but I would I would respond to everybody this way. Dead guys don't talk. They can't give information. Absolutely. If Al-Qaeda alive as a prisoner is better and more valuable to us than him dead. I mean, Absolutely. The, the, the sad part of, you know, let me rephrase the sad part. I don't even want to go there. Uh, those it's the stories you hear where a gunman then turns the gun on himself after killing three other people, whatever it may be. We don't know the motive. Why? Because that guy's dead. So uh, that's the first thing I would say. The the alive Al Qaeda guy probably is more useful to us than they are dead. That's how we. That's how and why we would pick them up. Yeah, for sure. I I actually have kind of a funny story that you know the other government agencies that that work in inside of combat zones. Uh, we did pick up a couple of high value targets that were uh, injured severely. Um, Medevac them in, came in at night. And a, um, do you know what a Russian hip is? A helicopter. Uh, no. it's, a, it's a Russian helicopter. Um, the other government agencies and 
you know, when the Soviet Union was chased out of Afghanistan, they left all kinds of old Soviet equipment. So some of these things were, were available um, to some of these other entities to use. And so a Russian helicopter came in and landed next to our helicopter and a bunch of uh, very heavily clad individuals um, in all black, you know, on ski masks and whatnot uh, came over and said, yeah, we're going to take your patient. And in this world, wow. you know, over here in California, that would never happen. An ambulance would never come to another ambulance and say, hey, we're going to take your patient in. You know, that's just crazy. You, you have control of your patient and you're, you're in charge of them. They're, they're, you've taken responsibility for them, you know. And now we've got somebody that shows up with, a, with an MP5 around his chest and says, yeah, we're taking this guy. And we say, no, he needs to go to the hospital. He's in bad shape. And they say, no, he needs to go somewhere else right now. And they took our gurney and, or, you know, the litter and took it out of our helicopter and walked over to their helicopter and put him in there and off they flew. That's insane. It was, it was a shock to, <laughs> to everybody did, that was there. Did you have any information on this guy? No. No, other than we knew that he was a, uh, somebody that they were trying to get. And so he was, he was heading off to be debriefed <laughs> someplace. Um, yeah. It wasn't where we were bringing him to the hospital. So My guess is he probably didn't get the necessary medical care needed. Yeah. It's hard to say. <laughs> he got some. He, he got some prior to leaving us. That is bonkers. Um, give me a couple other, like, you know, memorable med- medevac flights for good reasons or bad. Um, I mean. Because, I, look, I'm always curious. When you get numb to seeing the things you're seeing, like the, the medical field is always fascinating to me. I can't do it. Um. But the idea that, you know, this guy's missing a limb or that what you, the story you just happened, oh, we, lo- we lose another prisoner because the bad guy's got, you know, or, uh, you know, it, it's a child who's injured because they stepped on a, an IED or something like that. Like, you know, at some point in time, your body and mind have to desensitize to all this stuff for you to continue to do your job. So, you know, is there a point where you can remember that happening where you just re- recognize and go, I, it just didn't even phase me at this point? Boy, that's a, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can answer that. Um, everybody's different. Sure. I, I think it does take a, a certain person to be a medic. Yeah. To be able to see that tragedy, the pain, the suffering, and be able to look past it and think, okay, I, I've got a job to do. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to focus on their getting personally involved with this person. I'm going to focus on their medical care. I, I think that's how I, how I deal with it. Um, you see things that are, you know, limbs that, sh- that aren't in the position that they're supposed to be in or missing. Um, you see things that are, are horrible for your average person to look at. And then, um, but, but your job is to stop the bleeding and, 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 and get them off to, to further care. I mean, a paramedic doesn't really save anybody. We package them and control what's going on and get them to the hospital where, you know, somebody who has a lot more medical training than, than a paramedic does can, can do the sewing on the inside to, to fix what we can't fix on the outside. And so, um, yeah, tragedy wise, I, I, I know of one uh, story that probably would horrify a lot of people, but 
Um, there was a, a, a I'm going to call him Al Qaeda um, person that was going to bury an IED outside of a, a, a forward operating base. And while he was burying this IED in the middle of the night, he needed to take a shit. So he steps off, go, of, go. <laughs> steps, steps off the side of the road to, to do his business, and he craps either on a landmine or on his own mine, and it explodes. So it blows his feet off, his hands off, his pelvic section uh, blew it in, into a lot of pieces, uh, injured his face. I mean, really messed this guy up. But he was alive. So we medevaced him. They, they called for us. We get there. We medevaced him out. He made it to the hospital in Bagram. They did multiple surgeries and bandages on him. He basically became, uh, as horrible as this sounds, a doormat. Um, he's got no hands, no feet. Um, his midsection, he's catheterized, not catheterized. He, he's got a colostomy bag. He's got, you know, he's, he's got no sexual organs anymore. His face is completely gone. Um, so he's one big band-aid. Um, and whether it was because of pain or, or, or just the, the psychosis of, of what's going on, he was constantly thrashing around in bed. His arms and legs were going everywhere. And he actually he was falling out of bed fairly regularly. They had to like tie him to his bed to, to keep him in there. And, because he was Al Qaeda and because he was all bandaged up, um, we called him Taliban Tommy. So he, that was his name. I mean, that's what everybody called him. And so everybody knew it was Taliban Tommy was knocking over stuff again or whatever, you know, and um, I don't know if it was the nurses or, or, or who, but somebody stuck uh, the stick of the American flag in his cast in, in the end of his Cast. So he had a, an American flag on each stub. And so as he's thrashing around, he's waving the American flag. So people would come and get a picture with Taliban Tommy waving the American flag, um, you know, just as a as a kind of an FU to 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 the people that did what they did to this country. Sure. You know, the the, the horrors of war, you know, the average person would think, oh, my God, that's. The, the Americans did this. They're they're the most horrible people in the world. Um, you know that's that's how people desensitize from from all the horrific things that they see. You know how how they can come to deal with and 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 I guess accept it in their own heads. Right. Do you know if Taliban Tommy survived? Uh, Beyond you know that. But, my my guess would be probably not, or at least not for very long. There's no uh, independent healthcare system in Afghanistan. There's yeah, yeah. No yeah. advanced care. There's no care homes. There's nobody there taking care of 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 you know long term medical uh, problems. You know when when they have problems, they just let them die. And and uh, you know their their value of life is completely different than than ours. Right, 100%. So sometimes that's that's hard for people to understand. Children were being used, burned, mm-hmm. uh, cut, tortured, so that they would get medevaced 
because we wouldn't take them without a parent or guardian. So we would fly the child to the hospital. They would bring them into the hospital to work on the child and the adult would disappear. They were passing notes to the Taliban that were in the wards that were being treated. Wow. So, I mean, I'm not surprised by it. I just, you know, it's, uh, I, I think it's just really shocking for a lot of people to, to even understand that you would hurt your own child in order to, you know, pass a note to, well, uh, in certain cases it was, if you don't do it, we will. So, you yeah, know, absolutely. A lot of threatening of good people by bad people who all who are Afghans, uh, to, to force them to do things, uh, you know, that they needed to do. Um, which is again, you know, some of the most twisted form of uh, civility you could ever imagine, um, or lack thereof, for that matter. But you know, uh, Af- Afghanistan is, has survived that way for over two thousand years, uh, and nothing we were going to do in eighteen months, two years, ten years, twenty years was ever going to change that. That's a fact. So um, it. Uh, it was it was dead in the water from the beginning. Um, it was a valiant effort, and I don't say that to underscore anything that any American um, service member did there. But in the grand scheme of things, uh, the idea that we were going to inject democracy in two decades and undo two thousand years of ass backwards thinking uh, don't work like that. They no. got they, they got to want it more than you do. We had two thousand years of ass backwards thinking from England to America. They settled in you know. It, 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 let's just even do it this way. What do you 2000? It took them 150 years from settling in 1620 to 1770 uh, for us to go, yeah, we've had enough of this crap. Uh, we're we're going to fight back. So uh, if they were going at it for 2000, guess what? Yeah. It, yeah, they're pretty set in their ways. Yeah. It, 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 we weren't changing minds, uh, hearts and minds, right? Yeah, good call. Um, anyway, and, and look, I, I say that sarcastically, but I say it honestly, but I also say with the benefit of hindsight being 2020, I mean, you know, you talk to Mark who was heading into Iraq. I, I truly believe that it was the right thing to do. And, you know, we were, we were, we were there, we were the good guys and and we were doing the right thing the whole way. Like you just, you kind of, you get caught up in it a little bit um, because you love your country and you want to serve and, uh, and, and good, bad or indifferent. You are almost, um, I don't want to say fooled, but, you believe your own hype about I think you drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah. You know, I'm a, I'm a very patriotic person and no matter how much somebody can point out that we have faults or whatever, I don't care. I love this country. I've, I've been to many other countries. I've been all over the world. I've seen third world countries. I'd put this one against anyone. I don't want to live anywhere but here. Right. So even with our faults, I'll, I'll take this one over, over any of the other ones. So, and I, and I think most of the guys that went with me were the same way. You know, everybody uh, volunteered to go. I didn't have to force anybody. Um, my friend who I fl- flew with in Bosnia and also went with in Afghanistan had already ETS out of the guard. He was, he was out. And when 9-11 hit, he called me and said, hey, you're going back, aren't you? And I said, yeah. And he goes, I want in. And I said, I, I don't know if I can do that. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I can get you in. And he said, I, I want in. So tear up my paperwork. I'm, I'm coming back. And uh, yeah, he, he came back in, got, got fully qualified in a very short amount of time. 
and deployed with me and flew with me as my as my medic, my partner uh, for most of the deployment. So, yeah, these these guys wanted to go. I mean, they they wanted a piece of it. Was that that whole put me in coach thing? Right. I think pretty much across the board. Yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, I, I I think that part is a critical part of you know why. Um, we had the successes we did because there generally was a feeling of that. We um, people believed that they were fighting for a good cause and they, they wanted to do what was right. And they wanted to uh, be part of something bigger. All that said for you, you know, you have these experiences, any other ones that are, that, that stay with you sometimes that you, you think about more than others. Um, yeah. The, um, so there was a, a, a gun battle that went on at, at one of the forward, just outside of one of the forward bases, uh, about 150 insurgents. They were running back and forth from Pakistan over to Afghanistan because they knew we couldn't pursue them or they figured we couldn't pursue them. So they would come over and they would hit these very close FOBs and, and uh, you know, basically shoot them up launch a bunch of rockets and, and, and mortars and stuff in there and then, and then run back across the border. And so this was, was going on. And so this, uh, this firefight happened and, you know, we hear that there's American servicemen that are down. And so the two birds that were from that FOB flew in and picked up patients and started flying them out. We launched immediately from Bagram. I think there was another ship that, that launched actually from, from uh, Kandahar. Um, and so anyways, everybody was kind of rushing to where this thing was going on. And, uh, again, it's mountainous terrains. It's, it's windy, it's dusty. It's, you know, it's, it's high desert. It's, um, it's, it's dangerous just flying, uh, let alone being shot at. And so we get in there, the Apaches are being, you know, pursuing They're they're out doing their thing. So there's no cover birds anymore. So they don't really want medevac going in and landing because there's still active shooting going on, but American ser- servicemen need to come out. So guys are going in, they're landing, they're getting out, they're 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 taking fire, they're they're rapidly packaging these patients, you know, putting them on aircraft and flying them out to the nearest uh, FOB or 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 uh, surgical advanced surgical, uh, and then we'll fly them further back to Bagram. Well, when I got there. They were still there was still some active shooting going on, but this American that had been shot, um, he had some significant internal injuries and needed to to make it all the way back to the surgical, uh, the people that might be able to save his life. And so I jumped on another bird with a friend of mine, um, Gene, and we, uh, anyways, we took over his care and flew him home or flew him back uh, shortly after takeoff in the mountains, weather getting bad. Uh, he went into cardiac arrest. And so we began CPR on him. Uh, I know that I pushed on his chest for well over an hour, which is not very conducive to, to, to most CPRs. Um, yeah. You know, watching not being able to stop the bleeding um, doing IVs in flight, trying to do all this over, over mountainous terrain and bad weather. Uh, it takes a toll, 
you know, you're back there trying to do everything you possibly can to save this person. And, you know, you, you, you land and you, and you're, you're still, you're, you're putting forth every piece of strength and energy and, and, and knowledge that you have to try to save this person's life. And you get him in the back of the hospital and the doc looks at him and goes, Oh yeah. Um, he's not going to make it, you know, and they, they do continue care, you know, so that they can get his, his paperwork in order, his promotions, his, his whatever else all, all situated, which is a wonderful thing that we do for our, for, for their family. But, you know, he's never coming home. He's not coming home the way he left. Um, you know, so that one sticks with me um, pr- pretty that one sticks with me. I mean, understandable. Um, you know, d- d- the obviously you remember the ones you lose more than the ones you save, right? Um, for the most part. Yeah, yeah. I think, especially you know, when they hit hit close to home for some reason, you know. Um, I mean, but not all of them are that way. Uh, was, there, was there a part where you thought you were not going to be able to handle it? You were breaking it all. I, I don't think so. Not not oh, while I was there. One, it just over, overwhelmed you emotionally. I, I'm I'm sure there were times. I'm sure my my friends might see it differently. I, in my own head, no. There, there were times I went out and 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 sat on the Hesco and 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 contemplated, you know, what was going on and 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 tried to collect my own thoughts and and thinking about family and and whatever else and and you know, am I really going to make it home from this? But I didn't really have a whole lot of those, those thoughts. I mean, they, they, it, it could happen, but I think I was, I was so bent on doing, doing more than my part. Um, I, I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. Those thoughts, that, those thoughts that you had while you're sitting on that HESCO barrier, what were some of them beyond, you know, am I going to make it home? Well, just, you know, my, my wife, I've got five kids at home. I, um, you know, what, what kind of situation are they in? What are they thinking? You know, back, back then and even still today, I'm sure there's plenty of places that we go that, you know, we really shouldn't contact our families or we couldn't contact our families. You can't really let them know what's going on. So they really don't know what you're, what you're seeing, what you're doing every day. So all they have is the news, which we know leaves a lot to be desired, um, you know, to fill in the gap is my husband being shot at is my, is my wife, you know, out there being, you know, with explosives around them or, or, you know, those kinds of, of, of things that are going on, you know? And um, so, you know, you just, you, you just kind of wonder how much, how much longer is this going to last? You know, you don't really know. We, we didn't have an end date. What, what we thought was, you know, our, our end date or, or close to our end date, you know, but people were being extended pretty regularly. So you don't know, you can't really say, you know, Hey, we'll be home in, in October or whatever. When you find out that you're going home, what's your feeling? Almost disappointment. Why? Uh, it, you know, I think, I think we felt like we finally got a handle on this and we're doing, we're doing the most good for, for these, for these people here. And we didn't want to hand it off to anybody else for fear that they weren't going to be as good as us. I know that that probably sounds lame, but I know what our guys are capable of. These are all paramedics. 
and the unit that's coming in behind them might not be all paramedics, might not be well-trained, might be that goofy guard unit that never got trained up all the way. They got their birds, you know, eight months ago, not five uh, years ago. When you finally land back in the States, elation, relaxation, finally let your guard down. What are, what are you thinking? Oh, I think, I think I had, I had a few issues. There were some things that I didn't, uh, I, I really hated being around crowds that, that bothered me a lot. Um, my kid, my kids, well, my middle kid, when I left, he wasn't walking. And when I came home, he was walking, wearing shoes, talking, he wouldn't come to me. And that was, that was really hard. Yeah. Um, you know, every time there was something that was going on with the kids, they ran straight to mom instead of to dad. And that cut deep for me because I've always been really involved with my kids. And um, so that was, that was hard. Can imagine. Um, I assume everything is okay with the kids now. <laughs> yeah, actually I, I get along uh, great with all but one. <laughs> oh, okay. But we actually, I get along great with all of them. Uh, yeah. Actually about my relationship with, uh, with all of them now that they're more young adults um, has actually gotten even better. Um, I decided uh, quite a few years ago that as, as I realized my boys are getting older and I'm getting older, I'm going to miss this time that I gave up all the time to be away in the guard or, or be on a deployment or be on whatever. And I missed out on a bunch of stuff. And so I kind of wanted to reconnect there. And so started doing more with them, um, building these, these memories. Um, so that's, that's been good. We've been hunting. So when, uh, when you get back, um, did you, you unlike the, the, the first deployment to Bosnia, were you somebody who was thinking of getting out after getting back or you were, you were trying to find a way to go back in? Uh, I think I think after getting back and and, and being home for a little while, it, everything was was still kind of resetting. You know, the to know that half the unit went and the other half is probably going to go real soon, or at least within the next two years, we're probably going to go again uh, because that's kind of the way things were working. Um, so so there was that going on, but then after I got back because we were pretty successful uh, both in, in our operational readiness ratings. We, we really outperformed. Um, there's reasons for that, but, uh, we, we did a really good job. Right. And so when we got home, you know, there was some recognition that was going to happen. Like I was going to get promoted, um, instead of being an acting first sergeant doing it all for less pay. Now they're going to finally give me my stripe. Um, so they did that and and gave me a different unit. And so I went uh, further south in California and and, uh, and ran an AVIM, uh, a maintenance company for a while. And then Iraq was going on. So most of my guys ended up going to Iraq um, and the rest of the company ended up getting disbanded. And then I came back to Medevac. Um, so, yeah, I guess I, I kind of thought that that. I would probably end up going again. Um, and so everything was geared towards how can we make this deployment better than the last one? Right. 
I'll, I'll ask you one more about, uh, cause I know you said you were part of hurricane Katrina. What did you guys do there? Uh, we took our, we had, so we had a, uh, a pretty fancy helicopter, uh, an HH 60, uh, it, it's a, it's a $17 million helicopter that they made specifically for evacuation. And so we took these two birds and we flew them to Texas from California, uh, shortly after the hurricane and, and got involved in, uh, critical patient transfers and, and, uh, we, we were there strictly for medical reasons, but, um, ended up using the aircraft because they were available. And so did a lot of, uh, VIP overwatch looking, um, governor flights, you know, those kinds of, mm-hmm. of things. You know, was a, a, a lot of, uh, you know, the whole nation was looking at what was going on there. Um, when is your last helicopter flight before you get out? Um, I'm surprised you don't remember it more. <laughs> you know, I don't. I remember my last flight in Afghanistan. Uh, okay. that, that was important to me. Why? Uh, so be- before we wrapped up the birds and folded them and did all that stuff to bring them home, uh, the last, uh, there was a, uh, when the C-17s were coming in, since a lot of them were being used in Iraq, uh, it was difficult to get out of Afghanistan, um, that time frame. So instead of getting the birds that we were supposed to get, we got half of them. So I ended up splitting the unit and sending almost everybody home. Ten of us stayed behind with uh, two aircraft, I think. Um, so, yeah, everybody else went home or started to head back. And we stayed there another almost uh, about a month, a little over a month um, before we got out. Uh, so no mission. Our aircraft were folded. The new people that came in to take over for us, you know, had had the job. And so we were just kind of working out, eating, <laughs> walking, work, you know, it was it was kind of horrible. Well, after a short period of time, you're, you're so used to working you know, 16, 17, 18 hours a day, every day for a year, you can't unwind like that. Right. And so we started going with them on missions and helping them on missions. And I was flying with their crews at night because their guys were tired. Um, so I flew goggles. I, I took them out and did training flights with them. And uh, our medics were still flying uh, medevac missions, uh, two man medevac missions. Um, so yeah, so we stayed engaged. We did go on an R and R. The ten of us actually got to go to Qatar uh, for a couple of days and come back home, which was kind of crazy. But I mean, it's funny that you don't remember your actual last flight. Um, I don't know. You seem like you seem like you you would you would have committed that to memory. Just I, I guess because the question what I'm leading to is how did you know that you were going to be done. Oh, well, um, so I don't, I don't know the exact, uh, last flight in a, in a, in a 60 from my unit. I was already the first sergeant. I was still flying. I was probably the last first sergeant in the army to be on flight status. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you know, just to go for a, a ride around the, around our normal flight training area. I, I didn't really give it a whole lot of thought at, at the end. I knew I was done. And when I was getting out, I knew my last formation and I, 
I went out and I talked to everybody and I saluted and walked away. I mean, it's just like, what was that? What did you say at that last formation? Oh, just, you know, I just, I think I had an incredible career. I got to do a lot of really exciting things. Um, I've, I've been 18 different countries. Um, been deployed all over the United States. I've got to attend, you know, probably about 30 different schools. Um, some of them were absolutely fantastic. I, I got to do uh, master marksman. I got to do Arctic survival. I got to do jungle survival. Um, just a, a host of things while I was in. So, so I, I had a fantastic career and, and I knew I was going to miss it. Uh, and I do. Uh, every time a helicopter flies by, I still have to go outside and and, and look up at it. You know, um, it's it's a big part of my life. So that's pretty awesome. Um, you know, outside of the flying aspect, what do you miss the most about the military? I think the, I think the camaraderie. You know, the I think that's probably what you're going to hear everybody say. You know, that being being around your buddies and and you know whether it's doing the mission or 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 hanging out at the club afterwards or or whatever. You know, uh, we just had such a a great group of guys at the end there. There was probably like ten or twelve of us that that really made a big difference um, in the National Guard as a whole and 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 also in the California Guard uh, made a name. Uh, we have, I'm pretty sure, I can't, can't quote the exact numbers, but probably the last 10 honor graduates from the flight medic course are all people from the 126. Oh, wow. So that's kind of a big deal. Um, I, I mean, it, at least it was, it's, it's bragging rights, right? I mean, it's, it's still, uh, it's still, it's still pretty cool. The SIFI course uh, standardization and, and familiarization instructors course that is now an army course got started when I was in. Um, I, yeah, I was one of the first standardization instructors uh, at a state level. They used to fly me all over the United States and train other units because they were trying to set a standard for everybody to meet, not my standard, but the army standard. And then they created a course for it. So there's, there's a course today that people go to that I was involved in, in the very beginning of it. So, I mean, that's pretty cool stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, it also means you're just old. That's all. Well, that's, there's that too. <laughs> there's that too. Um, it's funny. We, we, we talked to, well, look, I, I mean, before I get to this question, you end up going to be a firefighter locally and you just uh, medically retired from that as well. So um, was, was the firefighter thing just something that was, sort of a continuation of military life or was there another reason that you wanted it? No, I was actually trying to become a cop and, uh, yeah, I went to, went to, uh, I I figured with all my shooting and medical stuff and and military training that, that being a cop would be a no brainer and I could get through the testing and, uh, just couldn't get selected. Uh, tried to be CHP. Um, there was a lot of, uh, affirmative action type stuff going on. Um, they were really trying to fill a lot of roles and, 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 and I, I don't fault anybody for that. I later on, all my friends who were, who were firefighters were all saying, you're nuts, dude. Why do you want to be a cop? Um, 
I just, I just thought it was my personality. And they said, no, no, a, a fireman is your personality. And so I started looking into that a little bit. I became a paramedic. So, um, and shortly thereafter, I became a fireman and no regrets. I'm not, not looking back. I'm not sorry. I didn't become a, a, a cop. Mm-hmm. Uh, being a firefighter is, is also a great career. Um, it wasn't my first choice. Being a, a military guy was my first choice, but there's, there's things that are very similar. The camaraderie, the, we call it sitting around the Oak. So the, the kitchen table is the Oak table. And so we sit around there and tell our stories and working on an ambulance is, is very similar to, to working as a flight crew. You know, you, you have your partner and you're, you don't know what you're going to show up to and yet you're trying to do the most for the most. And, you know, you just, you, you, you train hard and you train and you train well to be available to somebody. And I guess that's why everybody loves a fireman. You, know, you pass out stickers at the store and it's not all just making chili and watching TV. It's, you know, we're there, there to be the coiled spring. You know, you're not always a combat soldier fighting the enemy. You train and you train and you train until that day presents itself. So from that, it's very similar. We talked about your, your kids uh, at the beginning of the show uh, and just, you know, the idea of the hazard ground itself, you know, being able to uh, be a place where people can go hear your story. What, what do you want your kids to know about your military service? Um, I, I think that, that I, I don't have any regrets. I, I'm not, I'm, my, my biggest regrets would be leaving my family or putting my career first. Right. And, and I did, I always put my career first instead of, and my family second. And later on in life, as I got older, I, I see where, where the mistakes were made for that. But I also think that's what made me successful in, in what I did. So, you know, I, I don't have any regrets for that. I, I do have regrets uh, for, you know, some of the things that I may have missed with my children growing up, you know, the occasional birthday party or, or, or that, that kind of thing, you know, some family event, um, none that I can name, you know, off the top of my head, but, right. uh, but I wouldn't trade it knowing that I was serving my country and being able to provide the things that they can celebrate every single day is, is why I did it. No, listen, I, I, I think it, it it's a great reason. And, uh, I would add at least from a spectator's perspective, you know, um, that you, you, you certainly showed a whole lot of patience and a whole lot of, um, diligence towards your craft, because again, you know, it's one of those things where you didn't start out as a medic, you started out as a, just a regular mechanic, and then you gradually started moving towards X, Y, and Z. And it, it's kind of weird how the escalation of the different things you did in your career matched up with the escalations of the things you were asked to do in your career. Uh, those two, those two sort of parallel paths were there. And I think it's, uh, it's always great to see that um, you were in the right place at the right time for your career to maximize your skill set, your talent level and, and uh, be, be the best sort of, you know, as we say, quote, combat multiplier um, that you can be. Um, and I, I think that, you know, that that's something at least that stands out for me. Like I said, as a spectator on the sidelines, hearing you tell this story that, you know, I, I think is pretty unique sometimes. I think, I think what I would want other, other veterans and, and, and people to know is, you know, there's, there's that. So you were, you were army also, right? 
Mm -hmm. Still, yeah. Okay, so there's there's plenty of people out there that that don't understand the the bantering between the army and the marines, or the or the marines and the navy, or the you know the or that the coast guard really isn't a military, or or or, or the air force doesn't really count, you know. Um, so there's yeah. there's all that you know that they, they don't understand that, but to me, and I have worked with every single one of them. Uh, there are great people in in every single one of them, and and I would I would put. I wouldn't want to take away from, from any one of them. And even though I may bash a Marine once in a while, um, I expect it back from them just, just in good natured, um, sibling you know, rivalry. That's all it is. Yeah, sibling rivalry. And so, you know, I, I think just that, that I would want people to know that not everybody gets to be a hammer. You know, when, when I say the Navy SEALs are the best, or the Green Berets are the best, or Task Force One Sixtieth is is the greatest, or or the Air, you know, or whoever. It it, it doesn't really it, it it doesn't matter that who they're working for. They're 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 all Americans, and we're all doing our job. But not everybody can be Delta. Not everybody can be a sniper. Everybody that you meet in the gun store today is a sniper, but not all of them are snipers. Right. Uh, I, I, I say it this way, you know, um, everybody has their piece of the pie. Some people's piece is bigger and more significant, but you don't get the whole pie without everybody's piece. And that's just, yeah. I mean, that, that combat, that combat, um, that kid that's, that's hauling around, a, a an M249, you know, or, or, a or a whatever, you know, that, that, that machine gun or that, that whatever that he's got a specific job to do and he can't do his job if I can't do mine. And, and even though I probably don't look the same at it as the finance guy, but none of us can do our job without supply. None of us can do our job without a truck driver. You know? Yeah. Sometimes we need armor. Sometimes we need a helicopter. Sometimes we need a ship, you know, but in, in the end, we're all fighting towards the same goal. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of America and I'm proud of all of our troops. Um, and I'm still here to serve if there's uh, if there's anything that needs to happen. Yeah. Well, uh, look, it was an amazing 24 years. Um, you, you didn't accomplished a lot on top of that. You threw another dozen, what, 15, 18 years in the, as a firefighter. So um, it's been, a, it's been a long uh, 40 years of, of service, uh, both to your city, state, country, and, and everything else. And, and I don't think anything can underscore that. You know, I, I think that's the biggest part of it. I think um, people who have chosen a long life of service should be recognized. And, and your piece of the pie is um, whether you see it as big or small, it's your piece of the pie uh, and it is significant. And um, it certainly impacted folks downrange to say the least from the stories that you've told um, impacted you uh, and your family. And so, uh, that piece of the pie always, always is special, right? Uh, because it touched a lot of different people in a lot of different ways. Yeah, it, it absolutely. It, it, it was an exciting career, both of them. Uh, and I always say there was three, but the technician side, the guard side and the firefighting side. Um, yeah, I still do some volunteer work. I still teach, uh, on the side, I, I teach uh, EMT school and, uh, there's three volunteer departments around us, fire departments that 
we're training the younger generation to help um, get out there. And, and yes, I still I still push the military once in a while to kids that don't know where they're where they're heading yet. And hopefully they'll uh, somebody will pick up the pick up the the rifle and run with it. But um, well, yeah, keep, keep downloading that information. Um, it's it's useful. And I'm sure some of those students ask you about what went on in combat and everything else and, and what you saw and what you did and keep sharing those stories the same way you did here. And I hope that uh, when, when your children watch this and they, 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 they listen to this and they hear you tell your stories, it, it sparks some, uh, you know, very connective conversations between you all uh, because it's one of those things where, you know, we don't share enough of our experience because we think that people don't understand. They don't care. They don't, you don't have any relation to it, but in reality, um, that's what helps us deal with the things that we, we went through is when we share it with others. Yeah, for sure. Plus we don't want to lose, we don't want to lose those stories. No. You know, as, as I, as I see our, our world war two vets diminishing down to nothing, all we're going to have is, is the books and the movies, which tend to lose, information you know that those first-hand accounts those those pearl harbor survivors that are still around that can still tell the story uh you know those those are pretty much gone now we've only got two left i think because of you we'll always remember taliban tommy so i I would hope so there is that so he is now uh in in uh global war on terror lore forever thanks thanks to you well again i appreciate your time uh certainly Loved hearing from you. Thank your son, Camden, for me again, uh, for reaching out. Uh, I can't say it enough to our audience that it is so amazing to me uh, when people suggest their family members, parents, whatever it may be, aunts, uncles, uh, for this, because it just, uh, you know, we, we wouldn't know Gary's story without it, right? Uh, and, and had he not reached out to me, you may have never done something like this. Nobody may have ever asked, and you may have never wanted to tell. But uh, it goes back to that piece of the pie thing. We now know your piece of the pie and, and, and the impact that it had. So, again, thank Camden for me. Thank you, and certainly appreciate you being here. Will do. Thanks, Mark. Terry Volkman, thank you for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.